Where was we at this morning, Carolyn? Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and the first few verses. We listed a couple passages that we were going to look at. Where were some of them passages that we talked about? I think over in 2 Corinthians. Yeah, we're going to look at them here in a, in a moment. So let's look at Matthew chapter number 5. Let's turn there again. Remember this Sermon on the Mount is probably some of the most uh, profound teachings when it comes to uh, kingdom, kingdom living. They are impossible to live out. And uh, because the, when, you, when you look at it, what Jesus is really uh, doing is teaching us this, the, the kingdom of heaven, the standard, which he is and how he lived. And in chapter 5, he's going to go on on several occasions and say, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said that if a man murders a man, but I tell you, if a man hates a man, he's committed murder where? Already in his heart. And what he was doing was getting us lost, getting them, getting the society in that picture of, of we can't, I mean, because everybody has had ill feelings or hatred or some kind of sense in their own nature toward somebody else. He talked about adultery. Adultery was more than just committing the physical act of adultery. It's having lust in your heart. And he uh, just brings out so many different things in chapter 5 and chapter 6. He lays out for us both uh, the standard of perfection. Your Father in heaven, which is perfect, you be perfect. You be complete. You get into chapter 6, he's continuously teaching them about praying and how to pray and what to ask for. Uh, he teaches them not to worry about your life about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. Why? Because make the priority in your life of every day of what? Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He gets into chapter 7 about judging and that when we judge, we want our judgment to be in righteousness. We want it to be measured out in compassion and love because how we measure out judgment, that's how judgment's going to be measured back to us. And James talks about that even even more so. He talks about that narrow way. He talks about the narrow way. Why is it a narrow way? Why does he refer to it as a narrow gate, a narrow way? What makes it so narrow? Because there's only one way. That's right. It's narrow because he is God's only solution. He is the only way. He's the only gate. He said many will try to enter in. In the later day, you see right now, people have options. They say Jesus is an option, this is an option, that's an option. I have options right now. But when that time comes, when the options run out and they stand in before holy God and they say, didn't we do this and didn't we do that and didn't we do this in your name? And he's going to say, yeah, but you, you had so many options that you chose in that day. I wasn't your only option. And therefore, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never what? I never knew you. And that, that is the, the thing, is that Jesus has to be our only solution, our only option in life right now, right now. Not, not when, when we get to uh, the heaven and we see per se him and we are before him because everybody's going to, every knee's going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess, the scripture says. 
And when you stand in before him, and people do and will, they're going to know for sure that he was the only way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the only option. They say, we choose you now. And he's going to say, it's everlasting what? Too late. You chose your options when you still had other paths you can go down. And But we know that's the work of grace. Grace teaches us that there is no other way. So these, these, this message of the Sermon on the Mount is an impossibility apart from God doing a work in us. You, in our today's reading, you get into chapter number eight. We see it again, as we saw in Luke nine. Remember when the guy, Jesus said, come follow me. A boy said he was going to follow the Lord. And he said, you sure you want to follow me? The birds have their nests and the foxes have their hoes, but the son of man doesn't have a place where? To lay his head. I don't fit in this world. That's just it. When we, when we live God's way, we, we walk in his solutions, we no longer fit in this world either when we follow after him. It goes against the grain. It cuts against the grain. And that's what we see in chapter eight is this, this applicational side of it. Uh, where he says in 820, and Jesus in him, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And he said, look, you let the dead bury the dead, you go and preach the gospel. It's not that we're not concerned about the dead. We are concerned about those dying. We just have a message for those that are yet to die, and that message is the Lord Jesus. And he said, no man put his hand to the plow looking back is fit for the kingdom. So what, what, is, what is that word that he gives to us? That if we're going to serve Jesus and serve him well, number one, we've got to realize we don't fit in this world. Number two, we have a message for this world that we now live in. We've been sent to go tell and proclaim the gospel to a people who are uh, living yet dead and will die without him if they don't know of him. So we have that assignment. So let's look back in chapter number five and continue where we were at this morning, just in the uh, this picture of we, we want to serve our king well. And a lot of times we're going to be in conversations with people and you know that you're right in, in what you're telling them. And you be, you be straightforward and you be honest and you be compassionate and you be merciful and you be loving. You don't have to compromise on what is right, but you don't have to fight them and beat them to death on it if you want to have the right kind of influence. And we learn that from Jesus better than anyone. Everything he said was truth. Everything he said was right. And he spoke to a lot of wrong people. He come across a lot of wrong. And that wrong didn't get him to the place where he ever got out of step with his father, nor did he misuse or abuse people in that. And if anybody heard things wrong, meaning what people were saying that wasn't right, he better than anybody could discern what was right and wrong. Now, the more you grow in grace and the more you grow in grace and truth, the more you realize in conversations with people that the people you're talking to at times just don't have a good understanding of what the Bible really teaches. And you recognize that you see it. And where before there was a point in your time that you would have been on the other side. You would have been arguing for the wrong and not what the Bible teaches. 
But when Jesus began to manifest himself to you, then show you his kingdom way, then you begin to realize that what you thought was right was wrong, and now you see it totally different. Why? Because he's illuminated your eyes. Well, when people that you're around that are, are speaking untruths, and they're, they're speaking like fools, you can recognize it. It stands out. It, you don't discern God in their, in their voice, in their mouth, and what they're saying. And we then know we have something to benefit these people. We can help them. We want to, we want to be able to help them. But if you could recognize it, how much more do you think Jesus recognized every, every wrong word, every, everything that was said that was out of step with his father? All the time. But, you know, we don't see him. Um, that doesn't affect him in the sense that he was still able to love on people. He was still able to minister to people. He was still able to touch their lives. Even in their wrongness, he was able to, to be a blessing to, to those that he was around and lead them in the right way. So we can learn from him. Now, is that a, is that a challenge? Yeah. Oh, we can't do it without him. Amen. It's impossible. So, verse number three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that is basically somebody who's bankrupt in spirit. They're emptied of themselves. They are at the mercy of God. They realize that they are not what they thought they were. They don't have what they thought they had. God has done a work in them and they are blessed. They are blessed and the kingdom of God is already theirs. It is theirs. Theirs is the kingdom. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Those who mourn about their condition, those who mourn over the condition of their society, those who mourn over sin in their own journey, in their own walk, those who mourn for sin and their, and their, those close to them in a society around them, they shall be comforted those who are going through trouble and trial remember God afflicts us and God comforts us that's that idea of the fact that God's using that to shape and mold our lives that's the whole book of second Corinthians is about going through suffering that God is making us more and more like Jesus verse number five blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth the meek are those who are gentle, those who are patient, those who are teachable, those who, who, who have a desire to be molded and shaped. It's that idea of patient and gentle. They're non-threatening. Matter of fact, I mentioned, did I mention James this morning? Go to James. Let's go look at James real quick. James 3. Let's just look at this. Now we're gonna, we're gonna look at a couple passages tonight just to see how these things are, are actually the work of God in a man, woman, boy, girl, whoever that person may be. But in James chapter 3, James gives us a great picture of this idea of those who are wise and those who are not. James 3, if you keep going in the Old Testament, Carolyn, you're going to see Hebrews and James and Peter. Yeah. Hebrews, James, and Peter. Let's see. Where are you at right now? All right. Go back a little bit further. Let's see. Come back here. You and Luke, Romans. We got to go a ways, don't we? Timothy. There's James right there. James 3. Where are we at? Right there. 
All right, James 3. Look in verse number 13. Verse number 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show this wisdom by what? By good conversation. The idea of conversation is his conduct, his actions, how he lives, how he communicates, how he walks. That his works are done in the what? The meekness of wisdom. Always remember, wisdom is going to have a gentleness about it, a patience about it, a meekness about it, a humility about it. Why? Because remember this, wisdom is never threatened. Nothing threatens the wisdom of God. Why? Because God's not threatened by anything. Got to remember that. Wisdom has solutions. It knows how to take the next step in walking with God. It's not threatened. Circumstances, situations, the enemy, violence, whatever it is, none of that threatens wisdom. And when wisdom is not threatened, then wisdom can be gentle. It can be patient. It can be all those things. And you see, that's the kind of wisdom that we want what? Working in us. Working in us. But notice what what James is saying. Don't just let anybody tell you. Let not them only speak, but let them what? Show you. Let them show you. Let them validate it by their actions that they are wise. Verse number 14 But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, that would be the opposite of a poor spirit. Are you with me? That would be the opposite of a poor spirit. Bitter hearts do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from where? It doesn't come from God. It's not from above. But the first thing, it is earthly, it is sensual, it is demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and everything are there. Notice how, remember what the Sermon on the Mount said. Blessed is the, of the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? And remember, the kingdom of God doesn't operate in nothing but wisdom. That realm that God operates in is a realm that operates in wisdom. God's wisdom, not earthly wisdom, but eternal wisdom. So the poor in spirit are those that have been, the grace of God has done such a work and the wisdom of God is at work in that person. That's why they, they're not self-seeking. They're not arrogant. They're not boastful. They're not proud. They're what? They're poor in spirit. They're bankrupt in spirit. They're the ones who are in need and they're dependent on God because they, they don't have nothing to bring to the table. That's what a poor in spirit, a bankrupt man is when he comes to, to purchase something per se. He don't have anything in his pockets. He's empty. He's at the mercy of the one who's he, who he's talking to who he needs something from. And that's the idea of being poor in spirit is that, that we are at the mercy of God. We don't have anything to give to this. He's the one who is going to what? Lavish us with himself. He's going to lavish us with his wisdom. He's going to give us what we need to take the next step. And that's why the passage reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the realm of wisdom, the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? 
inherit the earth. Why? Because wisdom is at work in this poor spirit man, this man who is bankrupt from before God, who doesn't have anything to offer God to make God any better than what he, what he is. This man says that I trust God. I believe him. I, I've got to believe him. I can't go to anybody else but him because I ain't got nothing to, to offer uh, uh, anything of any value or worth. I'm bankrupt. I'm at his mercy. And what God does is pour into that person. He pours in the kingdom. What comes with the kingdom? God's wisdom. God's wisdom. He says this, verse number 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, what comes with that? A, st- a distorted view. That's what confusion is, a distorted view of things. And every evil or fallen thing is there. But notice what verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first, what? Pure. Pure. It's clean. It's clean. And then it's what? It's peaceable. It's calming. Then it's what? Gentle. It's caring. Then it's willing to yield. It's conformable. It's, it's confident. It doesn't, it's not threatened. It's full of mercy, compassion, and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. For the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who what? Well, this sounds like the Beatitudes to me. Why? Because wisdom is at work in that person. That's why that person is blessed, because God's at work in them. And when God's at work and God's doing something, his wisdom is doing something. And when his, his wisdom is just not threatened by anything. Notice, notice this list again. Keep this in mind. Wisdom is first clean. It is certain. It is calming. It is caring, it is confident, it is compassionate, and it is considerate. It shows no partiality, no hypocrisy. It is a beautiful picture of the touch of God. You see, before all these qualities, it is clean and without the influence or Input of selfishness or individuality where that's because the person who receives it is bankrupt. And when he who owns all things and possesses wisdom pours his wisdom into an empty, bankrupt soul, that person can't help but display those same characteristics that we see. And that's why the Beatitudes are what they are. This is a work that has happened in the heart of a person that God has touched and God has done this work. Wisdom is meek. It is the meekness of wisdom. It is patient and it is gentle. It is gentle. And those will inherit the earth. We got great promises of of the Lord. When he comes, he is our reward. And the scripture says God's going to make a new heavens and the new earth. And there's going to be great things that take place. This old world we live in, meaning the cosmos of it, it belongs to our Father, doesn't it? Now, the world that belongs to the enemy is a thinking that God doesn't that doesn't factor God into the equation. That's where the enemy operates. But that's 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 earthly, that's sensual, that's demonic. That's where the enemy functions. But when God gets into a person, He changes how they look at life. Wisdom is appealing. 
Wisdom is approachable, wisdom is appropriate, and wisdom is acceptable to God. Isn't that all the pictures we see with the Beatitudes? We see the same. It's appealing. Blessed is the man that is poor in spirit. We, we struggle with people who elevate themselves in pride. But somebody who's humble and meek, they have an appeal to them. Uh, what, is the, what does Proverbs teach us? I think about this with our president. Uh, every time I hear him speak, uh, I, w- I will remember these, these passages. Scripture says, he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. When you elevate your gate, when you say your gate, meaning your place, your things, what you built, what you've done is superior to everybody else's gate, you've got the whole world now going to try to tear your gate down. They won't. It's just inevitable. It's natural. Where is that at in the Proverbs? Let's go try to find it. Let's see if we can find that. I think it's in Proverbs maybe 17. I could be wrong. What does it say? Well, that goes along. That a fool is obviously somebody who's not wise. That that would be what we find throughout Proverbs: the contrast between the foolish and the wise. Seventeen, nineteen. Yes, seventeen, nineteen. I'd put a note in the other night. What's seventeen, nineteen? Say, read yours, Karen. Read seventeen nineteen. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. Okay. My translation uses the word gate. He who exalts his gate. Anybody got another translation? As King James says the same thing. He who exalts his gate seeks destruction. He who loves transgressions loves strife, loves a fight. He who loves... Uh, 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 crossing the line, loves an argument, loves a battle. And in that battle, a prideful person is going to constantly do what? Exalt his position. Exalt his gate. And it's inevitable. This is just a, a natural thing among natural men. Men that elevate their way pridefully have another group of men who pridefully say, we're going to prove you wrong. That you're not as good as you say you are. Your gate is not as strong as you says that you say it is. Your house is not as stable as you believe it is. Your administration is not as good as you claim it to be. And we're going to show you that it's not. Anytime a person or a group of people exalt their way to be superior to everybody else's way, you can guarantee that they're going to start turning the cannons towards you. And they're going to start trying to shoot and knock you down every single time. And every time our, our, our president would just talk, he always talked about his, what he's done. He's done. He's done. They've done it the best. Nothing else. You, you just, you're just opening yourself up. You, you're inviting everybody around the world to say, come prove me wrong. And I guarantee you they're going to do everything they can to prove it wrong. And they're going to find cracks. And they're going to find holes. It's just inevitable. That's just, but see, wisdom doesn't operate that way. Why? Because wisdom is never threatened. So wisdom doesn't have to parade itself. doesn't have to show off. 
doesn't have to elevate itself. Meaning wisdom can be patient and gentle even when wrong is in its presence. Even when things are not right. Jesus operated with the wisdom of God. Remember this, that God says in the very beginning, man, it was not good that man should be without a helpmeet, a woman. So what? He took out a Adam's side, created a woman, and brought a helpmeet to him, somebody comparable to him, that it was not good that man should be alone. So God created a woman for him. And think about this from the perspective of, I know we've, I, I brought this out before, Wisdom in the scriptures is always spoken of in the feminine sense. Throughout the scriptures, when wisdom is spoken of, it's always spoken in the feminine sense. Because I think it goes back to the very beginning. That just like Adam, it was not good for Adam to function in this world in and of and by himself. So God created a female woman to be his helpmeet alongside them, to complete him, to complement him, to be together with him. And it's not good that men function in this world without wisdom, without the wisdom from God. When men function without the wisdom of God, they go rogue and they do it their own way. They do it from a fallen way. That's why we need wisdom. And that's why he said, blessed is the man that is what? Poor in spirit, for his is... The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Why? This is a man who realizes he can't function in this life without what? The presence of God and God's wisdom upon him. Anything he does without God's wisdom is gonna, is gonna foul things up. It's gonna mess things up. So he's dependent upon God. Now that man becomes what? He becomes meek like wisdom is meek. Gentle. Gentle and patient. And he's workable. He's able to work even uh, in the midst of the wrong. He's able to work. He's able to do. He's able to accomplish its purpose, wisdom's purpose, even in the midst of darkness. He's able to do that. And so are we when we're operating in God's wisdom. Amen? Amen. You take this for an example. Uh, go, to, go to the Older Testament book of Psalms. Psalms. Look in Psalms. I had, told a, I had written a little word one day. It says, you toot your own horn... Some people will notice. Toot your own horn more often than not. People will hear you, but will rarely pay much attention. Toot your own horn over and over again. Somebody is going to accept your invitation. They're going to smash your horn and they're going to shut you up. And that's exactly what we see. There's nothing wrong with being, there's nothing wrong with doing good or great works. It's the wrong thing to do if that's all we do is talk about the good works and the good that we've done. We just want to be wise and meek. Where did I say go, Proverbs? I mean, Psalm 33. Psalm 33, 18. That's why we pray for our leaders, amen? That God will surround them and God will do a work in them. When I would hear the uh, administration and leadership, uh, it was just one of those, another invitation for me just to pray for our president, and to pray for him because he's, he's, he's just he put himself in a position that they're going to keep attacking him and keep attacking him and keep attacking him. One, that God would help him. One, where God would speak to him. God would give him restraint.
and that he would praise everybody and their brother uh, except himself and and those that worked with him and for him and 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 others even across the other lines that did good things give them give them credit uh for it and and you'll you'll become more approachable and appealing and likable across the board rather than being attacked and always being attacked and we see it now uh we're seeing it now that you think about it with King David. Remember when we was just reading about King David with his son, how quick Absalom turned the hearts of the people against David? I mean, David's chief men. I mean, the whole nation, the great leaders of the nation who supported and stood behind David for so many years in a short period of time because Absalom appealed to their needs. They abandoned David. David didn't toot his own horn. David constantly was elevating other people and exalting other people. And if somebody like him could be uh, totally overthrown and run against by people who stood with him, there's no doubt that uh, a group of people will turn against our current president. I mean, it's just, or you, or me, or any of us. It's just inevitable. You can go from a hero to zero really fast, really quick. But in Psalm 33, in verse 18, notice this. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who what? Fear him on those who do what? They hope in his, they hope in his mercy. Notice this idea of, of a man that fears God, remembers a man that gives what? Place to God. And when you're poor in spirit and needy and bankrupt, you give place to God. As a result, God's eye, you have the kingdom. You have the attention of the kingdom. You have the blessings of the kingdom. You have the wisdom of the kingdom. And then we see the product of that start unfolding. What a, a merciful man shows what? Mercy. Somebody who's receiving mercy, what? Shows mercy. Somebody who hopes in mercy, shows mercy. You see how the, the Beatitudes is, is just a picture of the character of a man or a woman, a boy, a girl, whoever it is, who's been touched by God. Who's, who's God's at work in them. And the very things that we see, the rest of the scriptures unfold for us of seeing this product of God at work in their life. I mentioned a couple other passages this morning. What, what were they? Give me another one I mentioned. Second Samuel. Second Samuel. And give me another one. What's that? Second Samuel, Second Samuel 22. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. All right, go to Isaiah 44. Let's look there real quick, on our, and we're going to look at these other passages. Isaiah 44. I'm going to just pull some of these things together before we go. Tonight, looking about verse number 20. This is all about idolatry and those that serve other things outside of serving God. Notice how God pulls this and, and reveals what they're doing. Verse 18, let's just start there. When we get to verse 20, we're going to compare it to what Matthew 5, 3 reveals when the scripture says, Blessed are they that what? Hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Righteousness is in that realm that God reigns in, the ways of God, the work of God. Righteousness is God at work. It's His way. 
Notice where verse 18 says. He says, they do not know nor do they understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see. These are people who build idols, Brother Shannon, and those who serve idols. And an idol is anything that we elevate and put before holy God. It could be anything. Be yourself. It could be a person. It could be people. It could be money. It could be jobs. Be your health. It could be insurance. You name it. Whatever we elevate, something we create in our mind that really ain't a, ain't nothing, but we make it into something and we put it before God. He says in ver- in that same verse, in their heart so that they cannot understand, verse 19, and no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say that I have burned half of it, that would be the, the wood that they chopped down, I burned half of it in the fire, I've also baked coals with it, and I've roasted meat and eaten upon it, and it shall... And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Now here's the logic, God says. Somebody goes out, Martin, and they cut down a tree. They use the best portion of that tree, and they fashion an idol out of it that they're going to bring trinkets to and bow down before. But the rest of the tree, the limbs and all that, they use it for firewood. They use it to cook their food with. But they say this particular part of the tree was their God that delivered them and got them out. God says that don't make no more sense. That, that's as, as crazy as you could imagine. That from the same tree, you're cooking, you're keeping yourself warm, and then you're making an abomination that it's an idol that it supposedly delivered you. Very similar when, when they came out of the wilderness. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain? Yeah. And they had all the gold. Yeah. And Moses up there for 40 days. And they pressured Aaron. And Aaron took and they, they built a calf. And when Moses and Joshua came down, cause Joseph, Joshua was at the bottom of the mountain keeping everybody away from it cause nobody was supposed to be near it or touching it. When they got down and got near, they looked at Aaron and said, what happened? And Aaron said, we just threw the, we threw the gold in the fire and a calf came out. Jumped out. Calf jumped out. Boy, he was backtracking, wasn't he? he? I mean, he 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 didn't make no sense whatsoever. They fashioned that idol. Well, that that cost the lives of people. Yeah. See, people are going to do those things, and this is what they were doing here. But notice what God, what God says about it. Verse number twenty. He says, "They, he, whoever it is, feeds on what." A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? They feed on ashes. Now, what, what's in ashes? Nothing. There's nothing in ashes. I cooked some hamburgers the other night. A little haze will come up, and I had collected the ashes from the previous cooking. And she asked me, said, Papa, what, what is that? And Nate began to explain to her, that's ashes. She said, well, what's ashes? I said, well, you see this, these coals here that Papa was burning? We was looking at the coals in there. I said, those, that's fuel. In those, in those coals is fuel. And those coals are burn as long as they have fuel, but when the fuel has been expended from it, it turns to an ash and there's nothing left in it. That won't burn. It's, it's, it's 
they have no nutritional value. They have no fuel in them whatsoever. We just, we'll just throw them, throw them out. And God says, when a man feeds on anything in this old world that is not of him, it's like feeding on ashes. That's what it is. You're feeding on ashes. And he says, people that do that don't have a heart or a mind to even realize what they're doing. And the difference between that and the blessed man of Matthew chapter 5. What does it say? The blessed man of Matthew chapter 5, who was poor in spirit, who was meek, is the man that what? Hungers and thirsts for what? Not ashes. Not, not untruths. Not lies. Not falsehoods. But they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? This passage tells us that they that feed on ashes, that would be anything that, that God is not in, has a deceived heart that has turned him aside to feed on ashes. He has no idea that what he's feeding on can't help him or not blessing him. It doesn't have any nutrition or heavenly value to it. He thinks he's got something when he's feeding on ashes. But ashes have no heavenly value to them whatsoever. And all falsehoods, all lies, all idolatry, anything that God is not in that is not of the kingdom is ashes. And because of person who's poor in spirit, who's meek and gentle, and God's done a work in their heart, they realize that God has food for them. They used to be an enemy of his. They used to live on ashes. They used to survive off ashes. But they realize that that didn't, that didn't sustain them or meet the need in their life. Now they hunger and thirst for righteousness and God promises he'll do what he'll fill them amen Amen. he'll fill them he'll fill them with what they hunger and thirst for now what is all this building up to it's building up to us having an identity an influence an identity that influences other people an identity that relates us to being sons of God See, when you're hungry for something, you'll, 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 do, you'll do things that, that the normal person wouldn't do. And when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll do what the average person in this world won't do. You're going to seek God. Amen? Amen. And what God's going to do, he's going to what? Fill us. He's going to fill us. And then um, as a result, you're going to see this sense of purity. You're going to see this sense of, of this idea of being these peacemakers who are known as the sons of God. And remember we talked about this morning, the bookends, where it says, those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. And then those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, theirs is the kingdom. Now go, if you would, to 2 Samuel 22. Let me show you, and then we'll, we'll head on out tonight. 2 Samuel, this is also in Psalm 18. 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 are the same... Uh, word, they are a psalm of David, and they record it twice in the scriptures. It's placed in the Psalms and in Second Samuel 22. Look, if you would, in verse number 26. This is such a great revelation. Such a great revelation.
This goes right along with what we're talking about with the Beatitudes. Of the person who has been changed by the grace of God. Verse 26 of Second Samuel 22. With or you could say also the ideas among or with the merciful. With the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall what? With the merciful, God shows himself as what? With the merciful, they shall receive mercy. With the merciful, God shows himself merciful, kind. With those who are kind, God reveals himself to them as being kind. Those who see the mercy of God, who've experienced the mercy of God, express the mercy of God. With the blameless or the whole, the honest man, God will show himself as being what? He'll show himself as pure, clean, blameless, whole. Verse 27, with the pure you will show yourself what? You will show yourself as being clean or pure. So we see when, when we are kind, honest, and clean, God reveals himself to us that way. So how a man sees God reveals a lot about the man. Are you with me? According to this passage here, according to what is also written in the, in the Psalms, how people see the Lord tells a story of how the Lord also sees them. Because God reveals himself to the merciful man as being a God full of mercy. To the pure man, to a God who's full of purity, who does nothing but what is right. To the blameless man or man that trusts and in right with God, that's how he sees God. He's trustworthy. He's honest. You can take him at his word. But, notice what the next phrase says. And with the devious, which is those who are knotted up, twisted, you will show yourself as what? With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious or the twisted, you will show yourself as being what? How does it read? Unsavory. Unsavory. What does that word mean? Same word, same idea. Somebody that is twisted. Somebody that is devious. Somebody that is knotted up, messed up, twisted up. Somebody who's complicated. Unsavory. God reveals himself as being unsavory meaning something that's unwanted. You ever went to the store and you was looking at something and you had two items there and one was, uh, you wanted it as straight as it possibly could be, but somebody done maybe bought it, brought it home and it didn't work for them and they tried it out and it had scuff marks on it or they might have put a wrench on it or something and, and, and it was been used. Somebody obviously used it and you, you wasn't going to buy that one because it didn't, it wasn't appealing to you. It, it didn't look like it would be useful for you. So you got the cleanest one that you could possibly get. You didn't want that one because it was, it was messed up. It had, it had burrs on it. It was, it was twisted. It was uh, unsavory. It didn't smell right, look right, feel right. So you left it and got something else on the shelf. Well, God says that's how people in the world that haven't been graced by him, they see the things of God, they see them as being something that is unsavory, unwanted. They don't want anything to do with it. Too complicated. Can't understand it. 
Uh, it's too much. They don't want to fool with it. And because that's how God reveals himself to them. That's how they see him. That's how they approach him. And that's how God manifests himself to them as something that they don't want anything to do with. Now, here's the catch. How in the world would they see God? They see God through who? God's people. But you know what that's telling us? That with those that are twisted, devious, shrewd, unsavory in their, in their ways, that are not been made straight or right, they see us, the people of God, as complicated, as twisted, nothing they want to have anything to do with. Because that's how God makes himself known to people, through his people. So that's why in this world we live in, as I mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, what does the scripture say? The scripture says that to some we are the aroma of what? Life. And to others we are the aroma of something unsavory. Something that they don't want anything to do with. Go look at it. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Keep these passages in mind. 2 Corinthians 2. Look in verse number 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And God through us, what does he do? He diffuses the fragrance or the aroma of his knowledge in every place. For we, the ones he are di he's diffusing it through, are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, the blessed, and among those who are perishing, those who are not blessed of God, who are lost, Verse 16, to the one we are the aroma or the fragrance of death leading to death and to the other with the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? So Karen, what this is saying that when we identify because we want to have the right influence upon people, to some people out there, we're going to be the, the aroma of something that is pleasant. It's going to make people want to celebrate life. They see life. They see Christ. They smell Christ upon us. We remind them of Jesus. They can't help but see Jesus in us. It's a Jesus thing. It's a God thing. But to those who are twisted, who still feed on ashes, who still feed on untruths and lies of this old world, who are still attached totally to this world and not been changed. They, they're not poor in spirit. They're not meek. They don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're not merciful. They're not pure-hearted. They're not peacemakers. What they see in us is something that is unsavory. That's how they see us. Why? Because that's how they see God. Why? Because that's how God's made himself manifested to them. They see us as being uh, complicated, unwanted. They don't want anything to do with us. 
And then that at some point, as long as we don't get personal with them, they'll let us do our thing. But as soon as it starts getting personal, that's when the persecution starts. And that's why we see the bookends of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you that are persecuted for righteousness sake. Yours is the kingdom of God. You see, it's that in-between of being poor in spirit, walking in the wisdom of God, being meek, being merciful, being seeking righteousness and hungering and thirsting for it, being merciful, being pure, being peacemakers with the gospel, that's going to lead to a personal attack because we're going to be unsavory. We're going to be unsavory, unwanted. We're going to look like we're the twisted ones to those who are what? Perishing. Because we are the aroma of death to them and not the aroma of life. You see how that works? We smell like death to them. And when you don't want anything to do with something that, that's rotten and smells like death. who I mean, we, we just don't want to. That's just a natural thing for natural men. They don't want to. They want to avoid things that die. That's why you'll see people don't like going to funerals. And they want to stay away because they don't have answers for death. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to look at it. They don't have answers and solutions for it other than what they've created in their own mind and it don't satisfy and it's got an unsavory taste in it. But the scriptures teach us for the believer, death is something that, that we embrace. It, it, to die is what? Gain. Absent from the body is what? Why? We have somebody who what? Overcome death. Who's overcome sin. Who's overcome the grave. And we have an anchor. I think we sang tonight. We have an anchor that holds. Amen. That's beyond the veil. We're not afraid of death. We don't run away from death. We know we, we, matter of fact, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of what? Living. But you see, we too complicated and too messed up for people of this world that are perishing. And when we bring a gospel of peace to them and telling them that there is a narrow way, there's an exclusive way and his name is Jesus. And they tell us, no, there's other ways. And we tell them, no, that there's only one way. Then it begins to get personal with them. And when it gets personal, what do they do? Then they start persecuting and the scripture says, blessed is the man that is persecuted for Jesus' sake. Our reward is where? Heaven. Heaven. Not down here, where? Yes. That reward's coming. Amen. So we bear the persecution with the spirit of meekness and humility and wisdom in this world so we can be peacemakers and identify as the children of God. And for some, that's going to be life. But for some, that's going to be the aroma of death. And they ain't going to want nothing to do with us. Are you with me? That's, that's, where we, that's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Those that are saved and those that are lost. Those that are blessed of the beatitudes that we're reading about in the kingdom. And those that have no clue of what they are. So when you read Matthew chapter 5, it's, it's how we understand the rest of this standard of the Sermon on the Mount. you got to belong to him. Amen. He's got to do, be at work in us and then realize that, hey, I don't fit in this world anymore. But I sure got a message for it. And I got to keep my eyes on Jesus.
Keep loving people. Keep representing him well. Keep walking in his wisdom and not having to always be right in every situation and circumstances that I'm dealing with with people. Retreat is not always defeat. That I would rather have the right influence than drive my point home and damage a relationship with somebody that God is at work using me or somebody else to bring into the family. Amen? Amen. Because I want to have the right influence with them. Can they persecute me? Yeah. Yeah. My reward's where? It's a win-win. Amen? I can win a brother or I'm being rewarded in glory. But I'm, I'm winning when I'm walking with Jesus, giving me what he's given me to do. Amen? Make sense to you? See how that unfolds? You know why people like you or don't like you as a believer? Because they either like or don't like the one who you love. And when they don't like him, they ain't going to like you. You're going to be unsavory to them. Why? Because God reveals himself that way to them. Something totally unwanted. So you understand that. Don't take it personal. If you take it personal, you're going to start operating in the wisdom of this world, which is going to be bitter and envy and self-existing and full of pride. And what you're going to do is you're going to brussel up and you're going to defend yourself. And when you do that, now you're not operating in the wisdom from above. You're operating in this earthly wisdom and that's going to have the wrong impersonation. That's going to identify with the wrong person. And you're not going to be known as a son of God. You're going to be seen as something else. So let them get upset with you as a peacemaker. Amen? As a peacemaker. And, and let God use it in a mighty way. Don't exalt your gate. You exalt your gate. What's going to happen? You exalt your church. What's going to happen? People are going to constantly look ways to, you exalt your family, you exalt those things, people are going to look ways to what? Chop you down. Man exalts his gate, seeks destruction. You know what? Just keep praising your king. Amen? Amen. Loving on your brethren, being those peacemakers, letting everybody know who you love and who you serve. And boy, let God diffuse the aroma of his life out of you. Father, we thank you. We bless you and praise you. Thank you that we can love one another, walk through this life together, do what you've called us to do. And we can honestly say in here tonight, an affirmation before you, blessed are uh, the poor in spirit, for ours is the kingdom of heaven. We thank you. We thank you for the way you're working, what you're doing. We thank you for the times that we live in right now, that this is not accidental where we are, what you've called us to do, and who you've called us to reach. So I pray that, Lord, you would just continue to fill us up with your spirit, continue to grant us your wisdom, and that we would be those that are those peacemakers who are bringing your truth, your gospel, your good news, your redeeming work, the exclusivity of Jesus to a world that feeds on the ashes. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Love y'all. Y'all have a good night. Ain't he good, Carolyn? Ain't he good?